Shalom. This is Reverend John Ferret, and you are in the third session, part three, of the sessions, the podcast on the Day of Atonements, Yom Kippurim, in this brand new series called The Fall Feasts of Adonai. I just wanted to let you know the music that is uh, being used for the beginning and the ending of these special three podcasts on Yom Kippurim. It's a chant done by a choir of nuns, and it's called the Faithful Cross. Now I think, now that you're in the third podcast on Yom Kippurim, and some of the things that we're going to talk about, you're going to see exactly why I picked this chant, Crux Fidelis. So it's done by the choir at St. Cilicia's Abbey in the United Kingdom. So now, in the previous episodes, we talked about the sin offering. And it's quite clear that when you read it, in Leviticus 4, God said the sin offering and all aspects of the sin offering are only for unintentional sin. We've already covered that great rabbinic scholars, they agree with the writer of Hebrew, the, the book of Hebrews, that there's no sacrifice, no ritual, nothing in the Torah to take away intentional sin. Now when we get to Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16 is the chapter in the Torah that goes into detail as to what God wants to happen on the day of Yom Kippurim. And in verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 25, verse 27, we're talking about a sin offering. And that comes back to the fact that the sin offering and the sin offerings that day are only for unintentional sins because that's God's instruction. It's not Moses' opinion. It's not my opinion. It's exactly what the Torah states. God's own words. Now remember, there's two goats. One of them, if you read it precisely, is used for a sin offering, which means unintentional sin. The other goat is called the scapegoat. And he is taken out because the rest of the sins are put upon that goat. doesn't say that it's a sin offering. And it doesn't say in any shape or form that those intentional sins are forgiven. But he carries them out, all the rest of the sins, to be destroyed. He is not a sin offering. So in Jesus' day, how might we conclude that all of this testifies of Jesus? Now you remember that between 24 and 30 AD, he says this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. That's in John 5.39. All the scriptures. And the only scriptures that they had at that time was the Old Testament. I like to call it the Hebrew scriptures. Nothing old about it at all. And the primary books in Jesus' day of the Bible was the Torah. The first five books of the, of the Bible. Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So how do we see Jesus in the Hebrew Scriptures. Therefore, how do we see Jesus in the Feast of Yom Kippurim? 
Paul talks about the festivals. He talks about the appointed times. He talks about the Sabbath, the Shabbat in Hebrew. He talks about the new moon celebrations. We go to Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These things are a mere shadow of what is to come. They're a shadow of what is to come. So something is coming out of these appointed times. Something is coming out of the appointed time of the Sabbath. Something is coming out of the appointed time of the new moon. And it's a shadow. Paul goes on to say, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Messiah. It's almost as if he's saying the substance to the shadow. The shadow of the feast is coming over us. They are a shadow of things to come. So again, where is Yeshua in the feasts? How is he the shadow? How is it that when we look at Yom Kippurim, or we look at Yom Teruah, that we know of Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Sukkot, or Passover, how does he come out of those feasts as a shadow? It's like Paul said, of the things yet to come. On top of that, how did his first disciples see Yeshua in the feast, especially I like to think about one year or two years after his ascension. And I believe that as we look at the possibilities of what it meant to them, not what it means to rabbinic Judaism today, they are thousands of years away from the Second Temple period. And at 70 AD, rabbinic Judaism starts and Judaism changed dramatically. Judaism today is not the same Judaism that Jesus experienced. And when we go back into those days, those days that Jesus was here, those days that his disciples walked to see how they would see this appointed time of Yom Kippurim and to see how it testifies of Jesus. So, using the sources that I've mentioned to you before, and that is... Samuel Safrai, Dr. Samuel Safrai's works, uh, Heim Rickman's works from the Temple Institute and others, Josephus, we find that there is detailed, detailed information as to what happened in Jesus' day on the Feast of Yom Kippurim. And as we go through this, we can start seeing how Jesus is the shadow in these things. Let's take a look. A week, before the, a week before, the high priest left his home and entered the temple area and stayed in the room of the priests. All week he had to perform the duties of the daily temple rituals. He did the daily sacrifice. He cared for the menorah. He did the prayers. He did everything. This is a week before the Feast of Yom Kippurim. And we might consider the shadow of Jesus over this idea of the priest coming into the temple and doing these duties a week before. Because right before Jesus ascended to return to his father's side, he lifted his hands and he blessed the 120 disciples. This is in Luke 24, 50. He lifted his hands. Could this be the blessing of the high priest in number 6, 24 to 27? It's the only blessing, I think, in all of Judaism where somebody lifts their hands to bless somebody. 
the Aaronic blessing. Yevarecha Adonai Vrishmerecha, Yair Adonai, Panavanecha Vehunecha, Isa Adonai, Panavelecha Vyasemleka Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and may he give you his shalom. Could it be that that's the blessing that Jesus prayed over his 120 disciples the day he ascended? It was as if Jesus was showing that he's the high priest, since only the high priest can do this blessing. On Yom Kippurim, it was all about the high priest. The total atonement is all about the true high priest, Adonai Yeshua. So we get to the next aspects of the details of Yom Kippurim. The Sanhedrin gave instruction so that the high priest is going to be doing the daily rituals. But on the evening before Yom Kippurim, they presented the high priest with the sacrifices. This is all the sacrifices and the rituals for the next day. The Sanhedrin was instructing him about the next day. And he was under solemn oath that he could not change anything in the rituals and the sacrifices. He could not do his own thing. He could not add or subtract based upon something he felt or some idea that he had. And it's very interesting because when we understand that, we think about Jesus. As this high priest took a solemn oath not to change anything in the Yom Kippurim rituals and sacrifices and prayers, it's the same for Jesus. In John 5.19, we read, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. The high priest, Jesus, when he came, he would do exactly what the Father wanted him to do. He would obey the Father and there would be no deviation. Just like the high priest on the day of Yom Kippurim. John 8 verses 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I can do nothing on my own initiative. I can't do anything in my own mind. I've got it. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. He learned from the Father what He is to say and what He is to do. John 12, 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. It's not his plan, it's not his own initiative, it's not his own words. Luke 22, verse 42, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is saying, not his way, but his Father's way is the only way. No deviation, just like on Yom Kippurim, for the high priest in Jesus' day, there would be no deviation in any of the rituals that the that the high priest would be doing. So it's as if we see two shadows. One shadow, Jesus, the high priest. It's all about the high priest and that he would not deviate from his father's plan. On the morning of the great day, on the morning of Yom Kippurim, the high priest immersed himself and washed his head five times. 
and his feet and hands ten times. He then put on the royal priest's garments and did the morning sacrifice and the morning prayers. After the daily morning service, the high priest changed into pure white garments and again immersed himself and washed his hands and his feet. The bull for the sin offering was presented outside the door of the temple. Now remember, when you're reading Leviticus 16, the bull is for a sin offering. And it's presented outside the door of the temple. The high priest then laid his hands on the head of the bull and prayed. And so is there a connection here with Yeshua? Is there a shadow that Jesus is casting when we hear about the high priest taking off his royal garments and putting on the simple garments for the rituals? He became a simple man before Adonai, just like Jesus. <laughs> it seems like Paul got this. In the book of Philippians, Paul writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. The high priest and Yom, Kippur, Yom Kippurim put on simple white garments, took off the royal garb, and so did Yeshua. So did the ultimate high priest in the kingdom. He emptied himself of his aspect of who he's God. And he took the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in, the, are in heaven and, and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Another shadow of Messiah over Yom Kippurim. Now there is the aspect that the high priest is going to take an urn, which was called Akalpi, and it contained two gold plates. One of the gold plates was marked for Adonai, for Yahweh. The second was marked for Azazel. And it seems like the Hebrew etymology of the word Azazel is not a goat demon, but the etymology of the word is, is the one who is going to be taken out. Now the high priest reached in, took out the plates, the lots for the goats, and placed the plates on the head of the goats, which were now on either side of him. The plates then revealed which goat was the sin offering and which one would be taken out. Now what's really interesting, and I never knew this before, had to be identical. They had to be almost identical twins. So it would be just fantastic if they can find goats that were identical twins. Once the goats were picked, a red cloth was tied around the neck of the goat for Adonai, for the Lord, and a red cloth tied on the horn for the goat that was for Azazel. Just imagine the two goats, identical twins. And when we think about the shadow of Jesus over this aspect of Yom Kippurim, this is the fourth shadow. The high priest takes lots from the kalpi of the goats, the goat for Adonai and the goat for Azazel. The goats were identical. They were as if they were the same goat. It is a picture of Yeshua. He is definitely both for Adonai 
and he is for Azazel the one that's going to be taken out for he was foreknown Jesus was chosen before time chosen before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God amazing the two goats are identical twins giving the impression that they're one and the same goat so you can imagine the disciples they knew this this is what happened every year on Yom Kippurim in the days of Jesus and this Yom Kippurim as Paul teaches us a shadow comes out of the shadow of Jesus over us he is the sin offering he is the one taken out he's both at the same time next the bull was then sacrificed after the goats have been selected by lot the bull was sacrificed and the blood of the bull was caught in a large bowl the high priest then entered the holy of holies with the incense and took coals and put them on the stone and sprinkled the incense on the coals so that the holy of holies was filled with the smoke of the incense this is the only time the high priest enters into the holy of holies remember the holy place is on the other side of the curtain he is in the holy of holies he is standing before the ark of the covenant and then he backs out to the other side of the veil and he prays and we see another shadow of messiah so as the high priest took incense of the holy of holies incense is symbolic for the presence of god when god came down upon the tabernacle his glory was like a cloud thus the connection between the incense and it symbolizing the presence of god you can consider this when you take a look at exodus 40 verses 34 through 38 when god's presence came down and he came to dwell in the tabernacle for the first time the incense also is related to the words of the prayers of the people in psalm 141 verses 1 through 2 or revelation 5 verse 8 so the high priest took the blood of the bull and splashes the blood on a special place on the altar of incense. The blood represents the life of a person. It's like Jesus' blood and his words as he suffered on the cross. He is before the Father on the mountain of Adonai. Now the high priest returned into the Holy of Holies a second time, this time with the blood of the bull. He then sprinkled with his finger once upwards and towards the mercy seat. He comes out from the Holy of Holies. He put the bull of the blood of the bull on a stand in front of the veil. And then he killed the goat for the sin offering. He then returned into the Holy of Holies a third time, sprinkled as before, and again deposited the bull with the blood of the goat on the second golden stand before the veil. So the bull has been sacrificed as a sin offering for the high priest. And the goat has been sacrificed for the sin offering for all of Israel. He then took the blood of the bull, that blood, and sprinkled once upwards and seven times downwards towards the veil, outside the most holy place. And then he did with the same with the blood of the goat. In Leviticus 16, the Torah says that now the temple, the altar, the high priest, his family, all the priests, and all of the people of Israel were atoned for. Their sins, ka'atat, 
only their unintentional sins were forgiven and cleansed. Finally, pouring the blood of the bull into the bowl, which contained that of the goat, he sprinkled the horns of the altar of incense, and then making a clear place on the altar seven times the top of the altar of incense. What was left of the blood the high priest poured out on the west side of the base of the altar of the burnt offering. And what a shadow of Messiah. The high priest took the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and mixed them in one bowl. The blood of the bull is related to the sanctuary and the high priest and his family. The blood of the goat was the blood of the people. Now the blood of both has become mixed. And we recall in Galatians 2 verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is I no longer who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We become one with Jesus. It's no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. And during the Messianic meal, which was like a Passover Seder, Jesus lifts up the cup and says, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And his disciples that night of the Last Supper, the Messianic meal of Messiah Jesus, when Jesus offered that cup, it was very similar to a young man offering a cup to the girl that he wanted to marry. It was a way that the young man proposed marriage to the woman that he wanted to have as his wife. The future bride, and in Jewish engagement in those days, takes the cup of the young man who she will marry. She drinks the wine symbolizing the young man's life, symbolizing the young man's blood. It's like you're saying, may your blood become mixed with mine, my life with yours. May we become one in the covenant of marriage. We are saying we accept Yeshua's amazing offer to be his bride. He's to be our bridegroom. Remember the price to be his bride. We want to ever a covenant of a new life in him by drinking the blood of the covenant, as we read in Hebrews 13, verse 20. Oh, it's a time to dance with our future bridegroom. A time to be with him, realizing that there's going to be a day when there will be the wedding feast of the Lamb. Could it be that the disciples, when they knew that the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat were mixed, the blood of the bull standing for the high priest, almost like the life of the high priest, and the blood of the goat, like the blood of the people. It's like us taking Jesus' cup in his messianic meal, the cup of a new covenant, saying, Yes, Jesus, we want you to dwell in us, and we want to dwell with you. We want our blood mixed with you. We want to be your bride, and we want you to be our bridegroom. An amazing picture, even, that comes out of Yom Kippur. And then finally, the scapegoat, or the goat for Azazel, the one to be taken out, he will be taken out from the temple courts and led east to the wilderness. And the high priest laid his hands on the head of the goat, but this time he prayed that all the intentional sins would be placed on the goat. All of them. Now, I just want to take a little side trip here. I want you to consider a devout Hebrew, perhaps in the days of Moses, maybe one of the second generation coming out of Egypt. Or this devout Hebrew was someone in the courts of David or the courts of King Solomon. And suppose they sinned and they sinned intentionally and they want to get right with God. I mean, they're devout. 
They're serious. They love God with all their heart. And they're just heartbroken as to their sin. How? Torah can't do it. We already know that the great Akiva and the great Maimonides already has taught us in their own words that there's no remedy in the Torah for intentional sin. <laughs> the writer of Hebrews agrees with them. Now what? This deeply devout Hebrew confesses his intentional sin and he seeks teshuva. He seeks to do repentance. He wants a complete return to the Lord. What does he do? It's a sincere prayer. It's a devout prayer. It's serious. And all of this comes from our questions when we take a look at the Hebrew scriptures. What about this devout Hebrew? Can he be saved? Is there a consideration of our God who's compassionate, who's forgiving, who loves his people Israel? He loves the entire world. We know that because he gave his only son. So our question then as Christians when we look back at the Old Testament, what about the Hebrews who were deeply religious and confessed their sins and sought true repentance with God? Now this is, gets interesting. God said to this Hebrew, I will carry your intentional sin. Where did he say that? And on top of that, if God told this devout Hebrew before Jesus, if God told him, I will definitely carry your sin, where does he carry it to? Alright, now that's that's what I wanted to do. That's a little bit of an aside. We're going to come back to this. Let's come back to the scapegoat. The goat Azazel, the one to be taken out. Leviticus 16, verse 21. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions. Those are intentional sins in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And the goat was then let out and destroyed by being pushed over a cliff. This is not a sin offering. God never said that this goat is a sin offering. The other one, read about it in Leviticus, Leviticus 16, after the lots have been taken for both goats. One is a sin offering, the other is the one taken out. One of them is a sin offering. Now the scapegoat is not a sin offering, but he carries the intentional sins. He carries them. They're put on him. Now this gets interesting because we're going to go to Exodus 34 verses 6 through 7. This is called the 13 attributes of God. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means live the leave the guilty un uh, unpunished and visiting the iniquity of, of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. All right, we just read it. It says right there, 
God who forgives iniquity and transgression. He forgives intentional sin. How? The Hebrew word that's used, that's been translated forgives, doesn't mean forgiveness. There is another Hebrew word that is used for the forgiveness of sins. Not this one. This one is nasa. And nasa, as this Hebrew word, is H5375. And it means to carry, to bear, to endure, to lift up and take someplace. This is amazing. Let's just take a look at this. Let's go to a very famous psalm. Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, in the New American Standard, it says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression, that's an intentional sin. Whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. In Hebrew... The, he, the word there is nasah, to carry, to take away, not forgive. God is carrying our sin. Look at Psalm 32 again, now reading the actual definition of the Hebrew word. How blessed is he whose transgression is been carried by God. God has taken... There's another one. I'm going to go to... The event where Nathan meets David and confronts him. After David set it up so that Bathsheba's husband Uriah is actually going to be killed. He, he, was, he, he murdered him. So I'm in now in 2 Samuel 12 and I'm starting to read in verse 16. Actually 15. So Nathan went to his house and then the Lord struck uh, the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. So what had happened was, God does forgive David, but he said, I'll do it, but you have to pay a price, but he never forgave David. Let me go back now. And I'm going to go to verse 13 of the same chapter. Then God said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Now it's very interesting. You say, taken away. Nassah. No. It's avar. Avar means to pass over. To pass by. It's like, you see me walking down the street. And I know you very well. And for some reason, I've got my mind on some something that I mean something that's really bothering me. And so I pass by you and I just totally ignore you. This is what God's saying to David. He didn't forgive David. 
He's telling David, okay, David, here's the deal. I'm going to pass by this sin as if it never happened, but it's going to cost you. I'm going to kill your son. Wow. Now, this is a real interesting Bible study. A Bible, a very interesting Bible study on one word, and that is the word Nasah. How is it used in the Old Testament? I'm going to tell you from my preliminary look. I am fairly certain that there's no place in the entire Old Testament where God forgives anybody the way we understand it as Christians. Many times where it says God forgives or I will pardon your sin, the word is Nessa. I will carry it. I will take it up. Because there is another Hebrew word that means to forgive, as in forgiving sin. And it's not used here. And we already know, the great rabbi said, there is no remedy for intentional sin in the Torah, agreeing with the writer of the book of Hebrews. But on top of that, when you start studying the word nasa, why did the translators use it in Psalm 32 or in the verses that we read in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, where the translator said, God forgives transgressions and iniquity, but the word is nasa. Now here's a great example of what I mean. If we go to Genesis 27, starting at verse 1, going through verse 3, we read in the NASB, And it came to pass that when Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim, so that he could not see, he called Esau his elder son, and said to him, My son. And he said unto him, Here I am. And he said, Behold, now I am old. I know not the day of my death. Now therefore take... I pray thee, notice the word take, I pray thee thy weapons, thy quiver and thy bow, and go out to the field and take, take me venison. The word take there is the word Nassau. In other words, to take up. Take your weapons, carry them, go out into the field. Not forgive your weapons, but to take them up. The word is Nassau. Why didn't the translator say he wanted him to forgive his weapons? No, because Nassau means to take up, to take up, to take away, to lift up. So in a sense, perhaps the translators are saying Nassau, take up, take up means to forgive. Uh, that is a likelihood, or that is a possibility the way they view that. But the use of the word Nassau for forgiveness and the, the t to carry are just, they seem to be incompatible. So let's go back to Yom Kippurim. Let's go back to the idea that God doesn't forgive our sins, but he carries them. Let's go back and consider the scapegoat. The scapegoat carries the intentional sins of all Israel taken out to be destroyed. God says, Leviticus, this is Exodus 34, 6 through 7, 
I am the one who carries your sin. Yes, to that ancient Hebrew, maybe in David's court who had sinned and, and wants to be forgiven, God is saying, I'm not going to forgive your sin. It's not that time yet, but I'll carry it. I will carry it. Where? Where does God carry it? We go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. This is just unbelievable. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. The English word in the New American Standard is bore. Carry. Carry like a burden. The Greek word there is anafero. Strong's number G399. Now what's interesting is, when you go into Thayer's Greek lexicon, Thayer's has done a brilliant job, and he will tell us, if this Greek word was used in the Septuagint, remember the Septuagint, is the Hebrew scriptures translated from the Hebrew to the Greek. So Thayer's will help us to say a Greek word does translate Hebrew words in the Septuagint. And that's what he did with Anafero. Anafero translates the word Nasa. And we come back to 1 Peter 2 verse 24. And he himself carried our sins. Jesus carries them to the cross. The scapegoat is a picture. Is a picture of the only way our intentional sin can be erased, cleansed, atoned for, and forgiven. The destruction of the Lamb of God is like the destruction of the, of the scapegoat. And that Hebrew in David's court or in Solomon's court it seems as if God honors his confession. God honors his repentance. But the sin can't be forgiven, cleansed, or atoned for yet. It will. It will be. It will be at the cross. So the scapegoat, all of the intentional sins, the transgressions, and the iniquities as we read in Leviticus 16 are put upon the scapegoat and he carries them as he's taken outside the city for destruction and Jesus he too carried all of our sin unintentional and intentional he was taken outside the city and the Lamb of God was destroyed. And He is the final answer for the forgiveness of our intentional sin. Jesus is the shadow of the scapegoat on Yom Kippurim. While the scapegoat was taken out, the high priest then cut up the bull and the goat. The hide, the flesh, and the carcass were taken out of the temple to be burned. 
The body parts, as per the rules of the sin offering, were set aside. The high priest then immersed himself again, changed back into his golden robes, and came before the people. The specified parts of the bull and the goat were not sacrificed on the altar as a sin offering. The goat and bull would then be part of the festive meal at the end of Yom Kippur for the priest in the temple. A festive meal. One last time, the priest took off his golden royal garments and he put on the simple white linen garments after he again immersed himself and he went back into the Holy of Holies one last time to retrieve the bowl of incense. He came out again and immersed himself and put on his high priestly golden garments and proceeded to do the evening sacrifice. After the evening sacrifice, he entered the holy place before the veil and lit the menorah for the night. He then changed his clothes to his regular clothes and went home to begin the festive dinner after the appointed time of Yom Kippurim. And we think about Jesus as a shadow of Yom Kippurim. The high priest goes home accompanied by a great crowd of people. But before he went home he took off his simple white linen clothes. He put them aside then he puts aside the white linen cloth and would never use them again. The great crowd of believers escorted him home where he would end this awesome day with a festive dinner of joy and celebration. Yeshua is the high priest. He's our high priest. He accomplished the plan and did not deviate at all from obeying his father. He has gone to the father to prepare a place for us. As he said, this is in John 14, 1 through 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's going to come for us. He will come for his bride. Now a great crowd followed the high priest after the rituals of the great day to take part in a great feast. It's like the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made Him herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And we think about the bridegroom and the bride dancing the wedding dance. Yom Kippurim. A picture that through Yeshua we become clean and pure and whole. And our blood, like the blood of the goat on Yom Kippurim, is mixed with the blood of the bull, which is the blood for the high priest. 
mixed with the blood of Jesus because we become crucified with Christ. Yom Kippurim seems to be also a dramatic picture of the wedding feast of the Lamb and everything that needs to be done so that we're prepared to be with our bridegroom. So as we end this podcast, I invite you to listen to the 15 to 20 seconds of Crux Fidelis. The choir at St. Cilicia's Abbey in the United Kingdom. The Faithful Cross. Shalom. Thank you.